back to the Bebo University podcast. This week, I feature one of my best friends in all of the counseling profession, Dr. Aaron Jones. We're going to discuss his move to Doha, Qatar with his family. Why is this something that he wishes he did 10 years prior? How has he and his family processed the bevy of issues that exist in the United States since they moved? And we even spent some time diving into the meager admit rates at the highly rejective schools this year, viewing it through the lens of research regarding empathy-induced altruism. And that's just a sampling of the things we talk about this week. Thank you so much for coming back to the pod. I hope you enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Bebo University podcast. I am sitting here with international man of mystery, Dr. Aaron Jones from the uh, cool land of Doha. Am I, (laughs) what's the temperature? I I think I saw something on social media recently. It's a a chilly, it's a cool 105 right now. Oh my Lord. Celsius? (laughs) (laughs) 105 degrees, oh my word. That's about 40 something degrees Celsius. And one of the things that you learn here is the metric system real quick. They do us a disservice in America with this imperial standard <laughs> system of measurements. So no, about- no one else is using that out there, right? The, the no, Fahrenheit? <laughs> no, it's just us. No one else is using miles. No one else is using inches. No one else is using ounces, you know. <laughs> First day here, I went to buy some sheets. They were all measured in centimeters. Oh. How do you know? Oh, the, you know, it's so funny because like Justin and just like my personal buying habits, like I've been going international with more stuff, right? Like just because sometimes you can find stuff over there, you know, in, in London and Italy and other places, right, that you can't find in the States. And so you get very familiar with Googling how many centimeters and inches is this, right? Like if I'm looking at a necktie and it's eight centimeters, okay, what in the world is that in inches? Now I understand it's three and a quarter. Oh, okay. You know, so like you, you get that, but only because of selfish (laughs) means, like these meaningless things have made me realize that, oh my God, we just are doing things really backwards here when it comes to the metric system and, and stuff like that. So talk to me a little, Aaron, about what it's been like, man, to, to be an international man of mystery. You, you grew up in Pittsburgh. We have, we've never held that against you. Us, <laughs> uh, us on the eastern side of Pennsylvania, we've never held it against you. So you, you grow up in Pittsburgh, make your way out to Villanova to play football and go, and go to school. And now you're in a completely different part of the world, you know, uh, ingratiating yourself and your family into new cultures and new ways of life and new discussions and new experiences. So what's it been like? Oh man, it's, it's everything I thought it would be. Um, it is this melting pot of cultures. Well, I don't know if, if I would feel the same way if I was any other country. Mm. So Qatar is an interesting country. Um, there is a small peninsula country on the Arabian Peninsula. We neighbor Saudi to the east of us. United Arab Emirates to the west of us. Um, and that puts us right in the middle, like on a scale of religiosity as well. So it's a Muslim country. As we know, we are just ending the holy month of Ramadan. Um, so it's Eid break right now, which is wonderful. But you know, I, I've always wanted to live abroad. I 
had a student when I was working at Villanova. I used to work this program called the St. Thomas of Villanova Scholars Program. It's like an early matriculation program. And the first year of that program, there was a student, um, this African-American kid, and you, you know an African-American young man, 17, 18, full of bravado, full of machismo, <laughs> got the swagger going on, but he had this stereotypical Asian modesty. He was super mm. humble. He was super um, sort of uh, slow to act. He was very much group-centered, uh, and he spoke fluent Japanese. And Whoa. I was like, like who, where, where did you come from? He was like, oh, I'm a military brat. You know, I, I was born in Utah, which is a random for an African-American kid. <laughs> but his dad worked on the bases in, in Japan most of his life. Um, wow. So he grew up and spent most of his life in Japan. Said, you know what? If I ever have kids, I want, I want that for my kids. Um, so fast forward um, up until about two years ago, I met a guy at NACAC, actually, Salt mm. Lake City. I go up t to the place where we gather, and uh, I- The watering hole? Is that yes. what you mean? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I, I start talking to this guy, you know, and he says, you're here for the conference. I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, what's your take on it? Blah, blah, blah. Boom, boom, boom. And I give him my card. I walk away. Six months later, he emails me. He said, hey. Would you ever be interested in working in international school? I said, yeah, why you ask? He said, oh, I didn't tell you. I work for Carney Sando, blah, 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 blah. He's like, would you be down? I'm like, absolutely. So again, fast forward, I get to Qatar. It's a small peninsula country. There's only 3 million people here. Mm. Of the 3 million people, only 300,000 are nationals. Wow. Everyone else comes from everywhere else. So you have this melting pot of culture, of language, of food, um of history of goals ambition like it, this is a place where if you have an entrepreneurial uh presence or being you want to be here because everything's new you have the chance to be the first there are lots of firsts happening here if you are in the oil and gas industry if you're an engineer of course that's the business here but education and healthcare, um and anything else and everything else in between so um my my neighbor is uh South African to my left, on the, on my right, um, it's a group of people from New Zealand. Across the street, we got some Canadians. Um, but it's funny, my best friends here are actually from Philly. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> they, wait, they left the quadrant that is Philadelphia. They we left for Philly and came here just like just like just like we did, but by way of Saudi. They went to Saudi first and then came okay. here. Man, yeah. that's that's interesting. And I like the moment I met you. Which is kind of interesting. We have this uh, six degrees of separation thing going on because one of your former teammates I went to high school with, right, Mr. Philip Atkinson. So we be and we're like, oh my god, you know Phil and all this type of stuff. So it's been interesting. But I could tell shortly after we were getting to know each other that you're, you know, somebody who appreciates different experiences. And we've even done conference panels and things like that where we speak to that right where i'm more of a, like let me find my fit let me you know immerse myself in this community and you're like hey if there's an opportunity and it speaks to me i want to take advantage of it right Absolutely. but so you know you you seeking out an experience like the one you sought out doesn't surprise me doesn't surprise any of the people who have known you for more than 10 minutes <laughs> but you didn't make this move alone correct you made this move with a family Yes, which indeed. makes it 50 times more interesting. So 
what was that like? You come home, you've had this conversation with somebody at NACAC, you've had subsequent, you know, emails and, and all that type of stuff. When you approached your wife about this, when you approached your kids about this, what was that like? Now, it's, this is an interesting story. I don't think I've ever told you this story. So right after undergrad, me and my wife, first of all, I met my wife when we were 14. Oh, my God. Um, so the University of Pittsburgh used to have this, pro this program called Investing Now. And what you would do is every summer of high school or the year before, you would take like a crash course in everything you're going to take the upcoming year. So when school actually started, nothing was new. You could just hit the classroom, and just kill it. So we met there at 14 on the University of Pittsburgh's campus. Right after university, we dated hot and heavy. I was a young man. I was not ready to commit at that point. She said, I hate you. <laughs> I'm moving to Korea, literally. Oh. So she up and left and moved to Korea, um, which was actually the best thing. Uh, I wrote to her one day, um, professing my love, telling her that I missed her and I screwed everything up. If she would just come back, that I would do anything that she asked me to and we've been kicking it ever since so all that to say she said she loved living abroad and she'd love to do it again so it was hard because she had just started her career um, wow. she was uh, an on pediatric oncology nurse at the children's hospital of philadelphia um, and she was moving up the ranks and she was well respected and i said hey do you want to throw all that away <laughs> for me <laughs> for me um <laughs> Lucky um, for us, though, those skills working with, you know, immunocompromised people came into great benefit here in yeah. Doha um, because when the pandemic hit, they yeah. asked her to help create a lot of the tracing protocols for the school. Get out. Um, so it all comes full circle. So to your point about going and seeking these opportunities, I had a wise person that once told me there are no such thing as coincidence mm. um, and you are where you're supposed to be. Um, Interesting. So it just worked out. So, you know, there, I think there are a lot of different lessons learned here. I think for one, those scenes we've seen in movies over the years, those things do happen where it's like, baby, come back. And you got you. You essentially had the stereo over top of your head, like playing a mixtape when you asked her to come back from Korea. So, you know, young, young people, if there are any students on here, it, that does work. But also kudos to her for not waiting for your butt. That's right. True. Like she was just like, look, I'm moving on with my life. And if you if we wind up being where we need to be in years down the road, we can talk then. But I'm keep it moving. Absolutely. You know, so that's a lesson to the ladies as well. Um, but that that's great. So now that makes a little bit more sense, too, in why she was so up for it, because this was not her first international experience or outside of her own, you know, area where she grew up. And so she, this was not as foreign to her as it would be for a lot of other people. Correct. Okay, so that's that's her, though. <laughs> I, I'm guessing because of the ages of your children, they hadn't lived abroad Correct. to this point. Correct. What was that like? Well, when we left, my daughter was six months old, so she didn't know anything. This is the only place she knows. You know, she took her first steps here, you know, so this is all she knows. My son was four years old when we left, um, and he was a very timid and shy kid. Um, and living here has really allowed him to come out of his shell. Um, he mm. is a much more talkative. He's much more outgoing because of the freedom that it comes with living in a smaller country. You know, we tell our young children in big cities to never speak to strangers, to always be on guard and, 
you know, we don't let them stray too far from home just because of cars and traffic and people do crazy things to kids. And yeah. here are the things that you don't even think about. Um, so much, in fact, another funny story. My son was about five and a half years old. I was upstairs napping, as I do. <laughs> and uh, my wife was doing something. I don't know where she was. She was upstairs. I was sleep on the couch. And my daughter had waken up from her nap. Oh, she went to the store. She said, okay. I'm going to the store. I said, okay, there's a store in our on our little development, like a little bodega. I said, okay, cool. Skylar wakes up as my daughter. He takes her out of the crib, puts her in the stroller, takes her outside to meet my wife at the store. Something that would have been absolutely mortifying in Philadelphia. You imagine oh. a kid pushing a baby in a stroller in Philadelphia. Someone's getting dyphus caught on them. Oh, um, <laughs> they will be there quicker you know than I mean? any police officer. Absolutely. The helicopters, eyewitness news. <laughs> we are live. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a child pushing a stroller. Where are the parents? And you'd yeah. be doing 25 to life. So, yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, the fact that he had the courage in himself to get her out, got her strapped in, things that would never happen in Philadelphia. So, I again, I really attribute it to, to the environment. Um, to the community that we've built here, um, this truly global community from people literally from all over the world who look out for one another, our kids all play together. Um, it's just a, an amazing place. That That is incredible. That is incredible to hear. Is he in school yet? He's in kindergarten. And, and so like we know what that looks like in the States right now, right? And even my son, he's eight years old. He's in second grade. We have not sent him back to in-person learning, even though we need him to go back <laughs> to in-person learning. Indeed. Um, just the way coronavirus has been handled in certain, you know, ways here and, you know, the notifications we continue to get back from the school district that some kid has it. Now there's contract tracing, all this type of stuff. We were like, not yet. Right. But he's in school. How has that been handled in Doha? And as you're looking at it in comparison to what you're seeing and hearing back in the States, like, were they going about it in the same way? Were they going about it differently? Like, what what is the state of things in Doha right now as it relates to the coronavirus? The the Emir, um, Sheikh Tamim, they call him Tamim the Great. Um, so a little bit of history uh, with, with Doha as a country. There was a political disagreement on the peninsula, um, which forced... Doha to be a blockaded country. So there weren't no direct access to Saudi, to the UAE, to Egypt, some of the other countries um, in the region. But as a result of that, it forced Doha to be very self-sufficient. Mm. Um, so what they did was they took some desert space, they built massive greenhouses, started growing their own veg vegetation. They bought, I don't know, a couple hundred Maybe a thousand cows start getting their own dairy. So Doha as a country was actually prepared for this in a way because there was there was no need to bring food in or out. We were completely self-sufficient. It was a closed loop. Mm. Um, when you have a country that is very wealthy, um, it was very easy to uh, make sure that everyone had the health care that was needed. Health care is free here. Mm. Um, and they literally just closed the borders and just let it fizzle out, I mean, to as much as it could be. Um, they instituted very large fines for non-mask wearing. Mm. Um, so what was a, a hundred thousand riyals, which is equivalent to like 20, 20 or 30,000 US dollars if you got caught without wow. a mask. Wow. 
So yeah, they were they were taking it serious. You got called out. No one. It, it's there's a lot of Asian people here anyway, which is a, come from a mask wearing culture anyway. It's a lot of That's it's true. very dusty here, so it's not uncommon for people to see you see people wearing masks anyway. Um, so masks. Um, we have a government sponsored application, contact tracing application. Um, you can't go anywhere without. Um, your app showing green. If you've been near someone who's been infected, you get a notification. So um, it was very easy to, to weather. Honestly, it was probably the best place to weather the pandemic. I don't know if you can see this, um, but you have a little QR. Oh, yeah. code, um, and then it tells you your vaccination status, uh, which is a whole nother issue. So, I mean, honestly, here in Qatar, it's been a blessing to weather the storm here. I did not feel inconvenienced in, in any way. From a schooling perspective, thankfully, my wife had the, the flexibility to be home. Once yeah. we went virtual, there were no need to have nurses in school. Um, so she was able to stay home and do much of the teaching, which uh, was hard for her. Uh, took her back to her Korea days, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> we, too, could use a break. We just want him to socialize more with more of the kids beyond the, yeah. the kids in our development and things of that nature. So, but, so all that to be said, things are great here. The vaccine rollout's been amazing. We were never uh, in need of toilet paper. Um, and right now they just got a notification that they are vaccinating uh, 12 year olds are eligible for the vaccine now. So nice. we're that far ahead of other parts of the world with regards to getting people that the vaccine if they wanted, of course. Yeah, which which makes sense when you think about the size, but also it's almost like that startup DNA that it sounds like Doha had where it's like, all right, well, you got to court this off here, there. We're just going to grow our own stuff. We'll purchase cows. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that's, I got to imagine that's part of what also attracted the wealth that the area has, right? Like people looked at Doha and were like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get involved in this startup country, quote unquote, early. Yeah. I'm going to get in on the ground floor. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, this oil and gas country, that's where the money came from. Yeah. Uh, but when they wanted to start to develop, and then of course that was the the, the draw um, from uh, I guess all the oil rich countries around the world. They all want to stake, you know. So we get people from South America, we get people from Russia, people from Texas, of course, um, and then we have people who come from the Philippines, from India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, and everywhere in between. Africa, the the Nordic countries, the Scandinavian countries, the Balkans, like we. My, one of my best friends is from Turkey. I mean, so it's like yeah. literally people from everywhere, South Africa. Like, I mean, you name it, they're here. Um, it's just an amazing place. Lebanon, Australia. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Well, I, I will say as a friend of yours that I'm really happy to hear that. And, and I had an idea that that's how it was because I think we would have all heard. The, <laughs> if, it, if it was not going so great, we would have heard from you in, in that regard, too. But it's interesting to talk to you right now because the time in which you left, things got really interesting in the States, yes. right? Like it, if I, I don't want to say that there's a correlation to you leaving and things going haywire because some of us thought like, hey, this is great. Like we're getting rid of Aaron Jones. This is wonderful. <laughs> but then it, when you look at the United States, it's like you boarded the plane and then the racial reckoning happened, you know, with BIPOC communities. And now we see with the AAPI community, right? The pandemic hits, mass shootings out of control, xenophobia, some would argue has never been worse as a whole, right? 
so on and so forth. So what has it been like for you to be an American, but to be viewing this from halfway across the world, plus seven hours time difference Mm -hmm. and processing all of this too? Because you still have family in the States. You still have a sister Mm -hmm. in the States. You still have friends in the States. So what's, what's that been like? It's been tough. I mean, you, 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 you deal with two things when you, when you move abroad. One, you deal with, honestly, oftentimes it comes in the form of embarrassment, at least mm. in the last four years, um, by what we've been doing politically or haven't been doing politically um, from that last administration. So there is always jokes. You're always on a short end of jokes about, about those sorts of things. When it came to the racial things, you, you, you feel a bit of guilt, honestly. I, I felt a sense of survivor's guilt, if you will, mm. um, because you see those things happening and you look out and the sky is blue and there's palm trees and date trees and you're just like, I should be there. You know, you, you want to be there in solidarity with with your friends and your family, um, your brothers and sisters who you don't know, you're just your kin and just be a part of, you know, a shoulder to lean on, uh, a voice, an ally, an advocate, you know, you just, it, it was strange to, to, to witness it. So that's the part level one, I guess it comes in waves and sort of yeah. circular. On, on the other side of that is you just sort of just want to bury your head in the sand and not pay attention because it's just become so overwhelming, especially with the George Floyd stuff and all of the other things with the cops and the brutality, like the videos that are circulating, you just don't want to see those things over and over again. I mean, it's it's an interesting place to be, especially when here, being a person of color, you are in the majority. You know, there mm. are more brown people here um, than there are white people. So, I mean, it's it, it's it's a combination of emotions um, largely tied to your nationality, but only by time, I suppose. I, I think the longer the people have been away, not necessarily me, but I have some of my friends who've been away 10, 15, 20 years from their home countries, and they more associate with where they are. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, at least over these last 18 months or so, um, it's been a whirlwind of emotion. Um, I know I'm rambling a bit, but I no, don't. That- yeah, yeah I don't, so we want to hear this. <laughs> I, I just, honestly, I haven't, I journal daily, but I haven't tried mm. to summarize it. Like, I, if you were to read my journal entry by entry, um, that would have been a, I would have been a better answer to be able to sort of synthesize it. But in short, I'd say it's an up and down, you know, you, you're, you're excited for the adventure, but then you hear something sad and it brings you back down. Yeah. Uh, you have a new opportunity and it's the up and then you know you hear that america's going back you know you hear a bad joke you see a bad meme that puts america on the butt of the joke um and then it forces you to deal with uh, a lot of the misinformation we were given in america yeah. um, especially around the arab israeli conflict mm-hmm. i don't remember learning anything about that in school not a not a peep but coming here um with so many people who are of arab descent people who are from Palestine, who are from Gaza, people who are from, from the Lebanese people, when that bomb went yes. off in Beirut, you know, when you hear about all the things, right, it, being so close to it, it, it really changes the perspective. And you just learn that, like, in America, we 
we're not always getting the whole picture. Uh, we do a lot of things in America that they don't do in other parts of the world, i.e. the metric system. Everywhere else in the world uses the metric system. Yeah. I don't know why we don't. Um, <laughs> everything's in kilometers. Everything's in centimeters. Everything's in milliliters. Where we're stuck on miles and Fahrenheit. Yeah. Inches. Um, so it's just constant roller coaster up and down with emotions and just like yeah, it, I suppose. It, it feels kind of like, you know, what's that, what's that old saying that history is written by the victors. Mm -hmm. And, and so as you, when you get older and you start to look at things and say, wait a minute, let me do a little research into what is really involved in this conflict or where did this law come from? Right? Like I think in the United States right now, there are people who are maybe for the first time realizing what Jim Crow was slash is because it's still around oh, in yeah. a lot of ways. And but, you know, when you're in the, in school, depending on the region, you might not have any knowledge that that was ever a thing, period. Absolutely. Like we know somebody, our family knows somebody who lives in, in the South. Black man. Did not know who Malcolm X was. Mm. Grown man, Aaron. Mm. Grown man. 42, 43. Oh. Goes to an art gallery. There's a, a, you know, a wonderful painting of Malcolm X in this art gallery. This person turns to my father and says, who is that? Wow. And my dad was like. <laughs> and then noticed that this person was serious. This is a black man who spent his entire life in the South, but had not been properly educated about people like Malcolm X. And so you're like, wait a minute. OK, if that happens, then how else has this happened? Where else is this happening and how is it happening? And I think the conflicts, you know, between Israel and Palestine, I think that's a perfect example of this. And on my Instagram feed this morning. There's a guy I know because we're both like menswear nuts and, and we found each other online. Right. So we follow each other. But he he is Jewish and he posted segments of this book he read about Zionism and the impacts and the ramifications of that in Gaza and those areas. Right. And so you're, you're now saying, like, oh, my gosh, like I didn't know. 90% of the stuff that he, he posted, and it was like an excerpt of a book, but the it was an interview that was contained within this book. Um, and I was just like, 90% of that stuff I never knew before. Yeah. I mean, I think that you have an American privilege. I think that as yeah. Americans who are in America, you don't recognize the privilege you have until you leave. I mean, the one, another thing that shocked me was how much American history non-Americans know. People oh, yeah. follow American politics. I, I couldn't tell you political leaders in other countries. People know who's on the gubernatorial race in Montana. I, crazy. I have no clue, you know, yeah, but like, oh. the, the things that <laughs> happen in America truly ripple out here, you know, I mean, yeah. I think that's when you think about Jim Crow South, when you think about slavery, I mean, they're doing it in systemic ways. I mean, I challenge you, Jeremy, I challenge your, list, your listeners to pick up a current US history textbook and see oh. what it says about slavery. Because to your point, regionally, they may use the word slave or they may not. They mm. may call it sharecropping. They yeah. may call these people immigrants. 
You know, they may say that these people came of their own free will. And I'm not just talking about like your local schools or your, I mean, like, I'm talking about look at some of these more standardized curriculums. Look and see what they say about uh, things of that of that era. Um, it's very very fascinating. The the word choice is critical. Um, yeah. I think that uh you know, yeah, I'll leave it that. I th- I think a lot of us would be, like, just in you proposing that, there was a a part of me that was like, I can't. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know, kind of like you said with, like, just trying to process all that's happened in the United States and saying, like, yeah, at a certain point, you almost have to isolate yourself because it's like, well, that's not where I'm at right now. And for my own mental health, which is a part of all of this, right? Like, you, you can't constantly take in negative information, news. It will destroy you from inside out. Yeah, man. So... But I, I felt that same kind of feeling when you posited, hey, open up a textbook. I, I don't know that I could go there because I'm I'm afraid of what could be in there. And then it's like, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> sometimes it, it is the most dangerous thing you could be is ignorant in, in terms of what's going on around you. But I, I just I don't I, I get anxiety just thinking about opening up a textbook, a history <laughs> textbook. We have our we have our own kids, man. I mean, we yeah. are at a point in time where it's good. By the time our kids are high school age, the things that are happening now should be in those books, and we have a right and a we have a responsibility to make sure that it's captured accurately. You know, what are that's been the implications for the COVID nineteen pandemic? Are they telling the whole story? Yeah. Uh, what has been the implications for um, all of these movements that we've seen in the last 15 years uh, from Occupy all the way up through mm. Me Too to BLM what are the implications are those things going to be captured accurately you know um, in a way that is reflective of everyone's story not just the people who you correctly noted who won um, so I think for you know the people who you know I think for me like when my son is old enough and he starts to ask questions like, well, what did you do when this was happening? I don't want to be like, I had my head in the sand, right? You, 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 I think a part, all dads want to be heroes to their, to their sons, right? Yeah. Like, to some extent, you want to be like, well, son, I was out there getting things done. But in reality, like, I, I was here. Like, you know, so I think that it's, it's a hard thing to, to think about. At least we can do is make sure the books that he reads are historically accurate. But I, you know... At, at the same time, I think you could say what I did was I brought you here. Oh, yeah. Speaking about, you know, because like as much as you were like, you know, you, you felt the guilt. And I and I understand where you're coming from with that. But I'm on the flip side. I'm sitting where I'm sitting and I'm saying I'm happy you weren't here for it. I you, know, you know what I'm saying? Because you don't. You know, misery loves company, but I don't want anybody to have to understand what these conversations are, were, what, you know, like, I I don't want just because I have to deal with it or walk out my door and encounter it doesn't mean I want all my friends and family and other people to experience that. And so I think, you know, it reminds me of when when my father moved us out of Philadelphia our neighborhood had really changed. I loved living in Philly. He loved living in Philly. My my mom loved li- that's where they were from. 
That's where a lot of our friends and our family were. Our, our street, we had our best friends living on the same block as us. And then our other best friends two blocks over. It was, it was amazing. Going to school in Center City, Philadelphia, I think is the most, one of the most important things that I experienced in my life. Being at my elementary school, K through five, in, in the heart of the city, and being kind of in that melting pot that you talked about you're experiencing now in Doha, that's what I experienced in that school. It was just as many black, as Latinx, as Korean, as Chinese students, as Puerto Ricans. It was amazing, right? But when I look back at the decision my father made when our neighborhood really changed and I was no longer as comfortable going outside and just riding my bikes and all those those types of things, my dad was like, it's, it's time, we've got to move. That's, my dad was not a coward in saying, we've got to move. He actually might have saved our lives because a lot of the people I grew up with, Aaron, are not alive anymore or they're not free. They're in prison. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys, I mean, guys I rub shoulders with every single day. So by not participating in that, he actually saved my life. And when you when it comes to how black and brown people are responded to right now in the here and now, you may have saved your life, your wife's life, your kid. You, you don't know. Right. Okay. So that's what I would I would say. You tell your son if he says, where were you when I was here taking care of you? Yeah, that's why, you. Of course. You know, I I'm so blessed to have had the opportunity to come um, and, you know, I, I thank my stars and thank my Lord every day for for this wonderful opportunity. And you're right. I, I, I do think there's something to be said for for everything you said about just shielding. You don't have to partake, but it's really hurtful when people say that to you directly mm. that you've run away like, well, no. it, you know, so I mean, I know. I know how you feel. I, I we know how we feel about it, but you know, I'm just yeah. saying like people have those opinions and they voice them to me, um, which is a whole nother story. Yeah, I mean, we had the same thing too when when we moved, and it was funny. I always tell a story related to this. I had somebody who knew my parents from way back when come and and uh, we ran into each other one day. And this person hadn't seen me probably in 20 plus years. First thing out of his mouth is, why did y'all move out of the city? Mm. Not, Jeremy, are you Gerald and Mincy's kid? So great to see you. How are your parents? First thing is, why did y'all move out of the city? You know, and I was like, dude, 20 years, this is what you're coming at me about? Right. right. But, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of like when people like, you know, we have one child. And you'll have people who are like, when are you going to have your next one? Now, my wife and I did not arrive at having one child lightly. There was a lot that went into that decision. Okay. Why? Oh, you got to have more. Well, that's because they have more. Right. So they want to graft their experience onto you. Or like I said before, misery loves company. So maybe those three kids driving them crazy. Mm-hmm. And they want you to experience. They want you to feel that pain. Absolutely. And they know, like, they can't just hop on a plane and, pi- and pay for five plane tickets. It's a lot easier for my wife, myself, and my son to do that, right? Like, so we have a flexibility that some of those families don't have. And some of those people offer up opinion because there's a there's an envy behind that in some cases, right? For yeah. some, it's a, a, a genuine, like, hey, you know, having siblings is a good thing. And, and listen, if, if circumstances were different, a lot of other things were different. Yes, of course, I would have wanted that for him, right? 
but it's like we did not arrive at this lightly. But people are always going to offer up their opinions. But but know that there are a lot of us, Aaron, that fully supported your decision, and we're happy that you and your family are having having this experience out there. Now, it was interesting when you talked about it'll be in 20 years, we're going to read about the implications, right? And things might be in their history books. Now, one of those things that I'm really interested in 20 years to read about is the implications of what has happened in the higher education sphere this year. Because we knew going into the school year, things were not going to look the same. Those of us in college admission, whether on the high school side or the college side, we were bracing for it we didn't know exactly what things were going to look like but we just knew it was going to be different and that first kind of shoot a drop was this whole test optional thing and then once a lot of colleges came on board with that we knew admissions decisions were going to be a little different so when i first reached out to you to have you on the podcast one of the things i wanted to talk about was what you saw from where you sit as a college counselor and I wanted your opinion on some of the news that came out a couple of weeks ago with the highly rejectives, right? Your, your Ivy League schools, your Stanford, so on and so forth, because those admit rates were staggeringly low. And, and they always are, you know, whenever you see 10% admit rate, it always hits you in the stomach. But we saw 5.4, we saw 4.5. And I was just like, Aaron, what do you make of this? And you had a very interesting take on it, as you always do with pretty much everything. So talk to me about when you saw those news, when, when you saw that news release and you saw these headlines, what did you make of the conversation around the highly rejectives and admit rates and, and all that? Yes. So the thing about working uh, with high school students in I've worked in many different, I've worked with high college going students and college students in many different ways. I've worked with college students on college campuses. I'm an adjunct professor. I work with graduate level students. I've worked with middle school students in public schools. I've worked with high school students in public and private schools and now international schools. And they all operate similarly, but the same. They all want to be the best. They want to go to the best school. Uh However you define best. Best for this conversation will be school with the lowest admit rate, right? Uh Okay. So you're working in a public school, you don't have often to opportunities to deal specifically with just college admissions. That's something that is the privilege and luxury of usually private schools or very, very resourced public schools, right? Yeah. On one hand, it was very, very tough for, I assume, my colleagues who are working at private schools who are just do college counseling, I don't wanna say just because it's a, it's a lot, Um, but who are singularly in their roles as college counselors, getting a lot of um, emails, I suppose, strongly worded emails from very involved parents. Mm -hmm. So you have that, you have to deal with your own profession, right? To do what you gotta do to keep your clientele um, engaged. Hopefully they feel good about their choices, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, you're like, yes, under the table, <laughs> giving like little fist bumps, because you know for the first time that students who haven't been had had these opportunities are now getting a second, third, and fourth look, and they're yeah. being admitted, and it is a beautiful thing. So on one hand, you're super happy for those first-gen students, those students of color, those students from low income, 
you're like super over the world for them because you know how transformative that experience is going to be for them. Mm. But on the other hand, the people you work with, a lot of disappointment, man. So it was mm. two tails or two sides of the same coin, man. It was really, really interesting uh, to, to work with, uh, with those sorts of students and hear those stories from, from both sides of that coin. Yeah, and I, I think there's been some research that kind of talks about these moments, right? And I know you put me on to uh, some of this research. I think it was Daniel Batson and a number of other folks who have talked about that that altruism and empathy and, and justice or lack thereof mm-hmm. that made you think of the situation that we're dealing right now with the high re- highly rejectives. And yes, there were certain students who thought they were in the running who didn't get admitted, but there are other students who were never really ever truly in the running that were admitted. So talk to us a little bit about that research that you put sure. me on to, because I have some thoughts about it. Okay. Um, and I listened to the podcast with Angela Duckworth, um, breaking that down as well, which I thought was fabulous. So talk to us a little bit about this research and why it was one of the first things you thought of when these admit rates and the, the breakdown of the, the classes started to release. Sure, it, it, it comes down to, to two constructs. One is empathy and other is altruism. And the research is trying to understand if empathy induced altruism is moral or immoral. So a lot of times people like to think that we should strive to be more empathetic. Empathy is a wonderful thing. And I think we, we would agree that empathy is good. Yeah. But what the research shows is there's limitations of our empathy, especially when there's a limited amount of good that's available. So in the pod, the Badson's actual research is about... Um, uh, it was a, a psychological study with uh, two fictional uh, sort of situations happening. There was a people were got to see a video of a young girl, and she got to plead her case to move up on a transplant list. Um, and there was a people who just a control group, right? And what they found was people who watched that video tend to move that girl up on the transplant on a donor transplant list, right? So this empathy that was induced from seeing this video sort of allowed them or empowered them to move this kid up, right? And so I guess the connection would be, or what the research's conclusion is, empathy comes at the cost of the out-group. Empathy only benefits the in-group, right? So in this zeitgeist of a moment of this racial reckoning, people of color are the in-group in some mm-hmm. in some regards, right? So the limited amount of good that's available as it relates to the college admission process are these highly coveted seats at the top 3% of American universities. And it comes at the cost of the out group, which would be middle class, upper middle class white people in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of interesting to, to, to see, to make that connection. And we're sort of seeing that play out a little bit um, but what we'll come to know when we look at those numbers at those universities is they are still overwhelmingly white. Yeah, <laughs> Just, <laughs> that hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. <laughs> um, but uh, the numbers and those other categories have jumped tremendously. And it is a wonderful, so off to a great start. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that, that research was really interesting for a number of reasons. For one, with, with that video that the control group witnessed, Batson was 
also saying that there might have been others on the list that actually were more in more dire need of that transplant. Mm -hmm. But in demonstrating and showing that empathy towards the young lady on the video, they were disadvantaging those who were in more critical situations. And so I thought the, the I thought the research was interesting because I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that empathy could just adversely affect the out group and but like do you personally ascribe to this this research this 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 position because i think batson he's gonna he's got his heels way more in the sand on this than i think a lot of other people even angela duckworth in the in the podcast that she did about this research and with stephen dubner they were both like hey we get a lot of what he's talking about uh, maybe not all the way with him on this, but we we yeah. see what he's talking about there. So, with you personally, like, do you do you co-sign this a hundred percent, or are you kind of that's interesting tiptoeing with it? So, the, there was two parts to that uh, program or to this sort of scenario that one we haven't talked about. It's, it's this idea of altruism, right? So, yeah, we think about altruism at its simplest form is the want or need to act on behalf of someone else, right? Let's keep it simple, right? Yeah. And so when you sort of try to question why people act, right? It's it's usually self-serving, right? Like people are doing this because they can make themselves feel good, right? In this instance of choosing who to admit, right? So do I subscribe to it? It depends the age old yeah. question, right? I, I think in this group, I, I think also it's only really applicable when there is a limited amount of good, right? So in this instance, when it relates to college admissions, there are only a certain number of seats, right? You can only do good to a certain degree. Um, so in that regard, when I think when only a limited amount of good can be done, I think, yes, I do subscribe to it. I do ascribe to, to that mode of thinking that empathy only benefits the in-group when and only when there is a limited amount of good to, to be done. Yeah, I, I, I think within, like, within the context of college admission, as I was listening, reading some of the research and listening to it, I find the truth in that, right? Because especially when you're dealing, you know, most of us outside of a community college, are dealing with limited amounts of spots, right? I mean, there mm -hmm. are some that uh, their admit rates are in the 60s and 70% and stuff like that too. But there are a lot, I mean, even if you're talking about your large state-related or state-owned public universities, you're dealing with 50% admit rates, right? So even there, half the people who apply and say, hey, I really want to come there are not going to be admitted. And so within those group contexts, I think it's interesting because it, I think there's definite truth to that. On a personal level is where I have the issue with it. Okay. Because I genuinely do feel that there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. Okay. And I think that, not that there isn't happiness in receiving. I love when I receive a gift. <laughs> Any of y'all want to send something to, to Bebo, feel free to do it. But like I, I, I think about my sister. My sister is an incredibly generous person. And it was my, my dad who made me really see that in her, like, years ago, right? And my sister loves giving and doing for others. And she doesn't expect anything back. It's just something she genuinely enjoys. And so 
I know a lot of Leslie's out there that really it's not because, oh, I need uh, I need a boost in my mood. I want to do for you. Yes. Is that a, is that an outcome? Yes, it is an outcome. But she genuinely enjoys doing things for other people. And I think that the I think empathy is interesting because one of the best definitions of it is your pain in my heart. Okay. So, yes, like I, th I think about friends of mine who have had difficulty with childbirth and, and from pregnancy to childbirth. I'm a man. I will never carry a child unless what they showed in junior, the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, unless that science comes to the fore, I'm not going to have that ability. I will never give birth to a child. But with my friends and family that have had extremely difficult pregnancies, extremely difficult times in the hospital trying to deliver a child, empathy allows me to have their pain in my heart. So I've not had a child come out of those regions of my body. But the the when you sit there and you think about how scary that moment is and you've carried this child for nine months and the, the bond between mother and child is unlike anything we even think we know. Right. Scientists think they know about that bond and what's happening on a molecular level. They don't even know the tip of the iceberg with that type of stuff. Right. To go through those difficulties to bring that life into this world is something I empathize with. And I think no one is on the losing end of that empathy, right? That person has my full support. Their family continues to have my full support. Anything they need, I'm there with you, even if you just need to talk, even if you need to pick me up, even if you need me to go to the grocery store and get stuff for you so that you're not ripping and running around, I'm here for you. There is no one disadvantaged by that situation, Correct. right? And so that's where with this type of research, I think there are limits to it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I'm not I'm not attacking Batson for doing it. But, you know, there there are certain folks who see, they see research like this and they're like, oh, it applies to everything. And they try to paint it across everything. It's like, no, 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 no. Because even Duckworth talks about this later in the podcast. And I will post a link in the description for this podcast, folks who are listening to that podcast that Aaron had sent to me where you can hear Angela Duckworth. I think it's no, no stupid questions. Correct. Um, where she, where she talked about it, but one of the things she said, so what's the alternative, right? She says like, so she was, she was talking in relation to folks who donate to a charity. And she says, so what's the alternative? People say, well, Hey, if I'm only doing this for selfish reasons and to make me feel good, I'm just not going to donate. And now those people who would have benefited in some way, shape or form from the donation no longer get the donation. Now everybody's like, no one has benefited from anything. And so I think that like th that balance is interesting, but I do think within admission, especially of the highly rejectives, it's interesting. And I think it's going to be to me interesting to see not just the outcomes this year, but in future years, because right now, like I'm, I'm becoming such a skeptic with this stuff. And like, I'm such an optimistic person, Aaron, but like with college admission at times is really starting to get on my nerves because you have all these people, right? They're so quick to talk about, oh man, we've admitted these students from these backgrounds and these underprivileged backgrounds and underserved populations and we've increased it 30% and we've done all this type of stuff. 
And I'm like, yeah, that's because the racial reckoning is going on right now. And you want your pats on the back. In five years, let me see what your admit rates look like for students of color. Let me yeah. see. Because it's easy to do it now. And when you when you talk about this empathy and altruism, this is where I'm 100% on board when it, when you're looking at it from through the lens and the prism of college admission in highly rejective schools because they're very aware of what national conversation is of course they are very aware of what their communities are saying what their students are lashing out on about uh, on campus on both sides of the coin what their donors are saying and don't believe that's not coming back to these university presidents by means of their development or alumni relations offices. It's cut that word getting back. Right. And so I think a lot of them were saying we got to be on the right side of this this year. But next year, what are your numbers like? Or I don't think this is going to happen. But what if at one of these schools, those students don't perform Ugh. as strongly That's as the their profile last year? Now, we know. Mm-hmm. Our students of color are amazing, and there are things called circumstances. There are things called dice rolls. Who who did you get? What what was your what professors did you get? What classes did you get scheduled? My the person who advised me coming into college set me up for failure. She knew I didn't love math, and she gave me two of the hardest freshman math classes that Penn State offers. Right, so of course I'm not going to perform as well. She set me up, right? So. If that happens, Aaron, I want to see these numbers next year. Yeah, what are man. your thoughts? I agree 100%. I think I, I agree with you 100%, especially about the altruism and the empathy. But again, remember, the, this, the study was just about when there was limited good. I don't think I think we could all benefit from being more empathetic to our neighbors and to our brethren. I think that that is a wonderful thing. But I think that any university worth its salt, and this is where it comes from, since this is me with my my university retention hat on because I did yeah. retention work for once upon a time. Any university worth its salt, whichever office retention comes out of, whether it's student life, whether it is support services, whether it is broken down by arts and sciences, engineering, whatever the situation is, they work closely with admissions offices. Yeah. They should know who their most at-risk kids are. They should also be prepared to program for these kids, right? So to to your point, is this a zeitgeist moment? Is this catching lightning in a bottle one time? I sure as hell hope not. But if universities are invested, if this is their mission, they will invest in the resources to make sure that these kids do not fail. Right. And I think that there are wonderful offices. Shout out to my alma mater, Villanova. They have the Center for Effort. It's called CASA. I'm so sad. I don't know what the acronym means. (laughs) Miss Coleman, do not be mad at me. Um, But I know this program intimately. Yeah. And like I told about the early matriculation program through the St. Thomas of Villanova Scholars Program. Yeah. They know who those kids are from the time they put their deposit in and they start programming for those kids to make sure that they are not statistics, the wrong source of statistics, right? So I'm optimistic that these kids are going to perform at the same rate as their peers. I'm optimistic that these kids are going to graduate in the same amount of time as their peers. 
and I'm just as confident that these young people are going to donate at the same mm -hmm. rate as their peers. I think they just needed an opportunity, man. And I think that for, oh, for, people of, for most people of color, all we've ever asked for was a chance. And yeah. once we've gotten that chance, we've blown the doors open in every industry, every job, you name it. Yes. You know, so I'm not even worried, man. I think it's going to be interesting to see it in, in another 10 or 15 years because I don't think that they're going to be able to... Uh, let me pause on that. <laughs> the only way I think the money could run out. You know, some of these yeah. schools that are, you know, trying to go meet 100% of demonstrated need, I think is a wonderful thing. But not every school can compete with the the uh, with the highly rejectives. I love that yeah. term, by the way. Yeah. I, <laughs> hey, Akil Bello is the, is uh, the one on, uh, on yeah. Twitter. He's always using that terminology and and I, I borrow it from him. He was the one who taught it to me. And I was like, I think that's the perfect way yeah, to I talk about that. those schools, right? Because, I mean, there's such international intrigue and attention that they receive. But, I mean, let's be real in terms of what they are and, and what they do from mm -hmm. an admissions standpoint. I'm not – I don't argue with the outcomes. Yep. I don't argue with it. But the, the getting there is what I will always argue yeah. about, you know. I think, you know, the, the supports piece is something I'm really worried about. Okay. Because it's one thing to say we have admitted our most diverse applicant pool. But do you, do they arrive and do they retain? Right? Because admitting some, you can admit all the black, brown, Latinx, AAPI people in the world, native american students in the world but do you already from your financial packages do you actually allow them to accept those offers of admission and one of the things i love about my role in, in my university is i get may one doesn't mean anything to me it means something to me for one of our campuses our largest one it means a lot Right. Because you they th that's extremely important for them from a class building standpoint. But the smaller campuses may want to mean anything to us. It's important. We put a lot of attention on it, but we get to work with so many students after that date is is one of my favorite things to do, because so many people are not in a position to have all their ducks in a row by this arbitrary May one date. You know, like I, I was dealing with a student the other day, first gen mothers from Mexico, they are asking all of the right questions they're just a month late in asking them uh-huh right uh-huh but these this arbitrary may one date boom losing scholarships here boom losing scholarships there because mom didn't know yep. that even though it was falling on a saturday there were students who were still i mean there were colleges that were still holding students to may one yeah there were others who moved it to may 3rd there were others who moved it to the fifth the sixth but there were a number of universities who didn't and mom did not know. And so where is that support? Cause you're kind of like out the gate. You're telling me you're not already supporting the need of these, of these students. Then through orientation, how, what are the supports like? Do you have as built into your student orientation introductions to these department on campuses or these people on campuses? Do you even have, these departments on your campus <laughs> your are they staffed because yeah. we can't assume just because you admit these students doesn't mean you can support them 
And if they come on the campus and already they're not going to see as many people as maybe they where they come from. I think we sometimes do a bad job of assuming that every black or brown or person of difference or person of color is coming from a place where it was only other thems. Right. Like because that's not that's not the experience uh, of all students. Right. But it's sometimes exacerbated in, on the university um, level and in, on the campuses. And so if there aren't places that they can go mm-hmm. where people understand them, are there to put their arms around them, it doesn't matter how brilliant that young man or woman is, it's going to impact their transition into college, it's going to impact their mental health, and it may impact whether or not you're able to retain them. I agree with that 100%, man. But the thing, it's just so interesting to have this conversation, especially about retention. I found the name of it. It's the Center for Access, Success, Ah. and Achievement at the Villanova University, led by the beautiful and intelligent Miss Linda Coleman. Um, So please go to your your Googles and check out CASA at Villanova. But anyway, I think students are becoming more and more savvy to these sorts of experiences, particularly in an international context, right? So here's a true example. They have um, a pretty interesting counselor, if you will, teaching them how to read the null spaces in schools' websites, the null information in their exchanges with college reps. I love what you said in your last podcast when you talked about inverting your search. You, you yeah. quote the biblical thing about something being on your tongue. I love that. Um, and I had a student from his first junior conference. This was his school. He loved that school. It was his top choice far and away he has an indian passport Mm. in india they have two national languages one of them is english right Mm. so now we come to the application process it's time to apply not only are we an american taught school or english taught school all our classes are taught in english they wanted him to take an english language proficiency test oh lord he's like (laughs) are they asking me this because i'm indian Uh like yeah you have an yeah. Indian passport. But he's like, English is the national language of India. I'm like, I acknowledge that. He's like, I'm not applying there. They're racist. Mm-hmm. Didn't apply. You know, so I, I think that kids are, especially in international context, are becoming more and more attuned to these sorts of uh, programs, these sorts of ideas. And again, I think it's another flaw in the American educational system. We do, they have these arbitrary dates. I've yeah. never asked a university this, and I would love to ask them, what happens on May 1? Do you actually need from May 1 to that third week of August to get them prepared to start school on time? Is all that time needed? Because in Europe, they're admitting kids up until the week before classes start. And I'm just yeah. wondering, like, this is all of that time needed? This is a question I've never thought to ask. It's just in America, we just know May 1 is the day, right? Like. But, you know, in the UK, for example, they have clearing that's going up through July. You know, you have universities yeah. still accepting applications on August 1st to start on September 1st. You know, so is that May 1 date really needed to lose the money, to lose that, that to that Mexican family? That's a real tragedy because of a, of a yeah. I don't know. I, I, you know, first of all, I am in no way, shape or form <laughs> qualified to answer this question, but I, I'm going to offer up thoughts. Okay. On it a little bit. Um, I think depending on where your budget and your revenue and your allocations come from, 
some schools really like to have an idea of what their incoming class is to budget for the next year. So I'm thinking about your state owned and related institutions. That date might be a little bit more important when it comes to, okay, what what allocations are we going to receive appropriations? Are we going to receive from the state? Mm -hmm. And how is that going to impact departments, retention of faculty, staff and such moving forward now? Do you need as much time? I don't know that. Yeah. I also think it's become a luxury because I'm going to be honest with you. Some of these schools want to be able to toss their hands up and say we're done <laughs> on May 1. Like, let, let's be real. I understand Th- there's a reason why some of these schools, there are people who love working at them. Right. And, and I'm not criticizing any folks like kudos to you if by May 1 you're doing this with your hands and you're saying we go team you're fist bumping socially distance you know so you're doing elbow Mm -hmm. kudos i've never known what that is like and i actually don't necessarily know that i ever want to know what that's like because from a, a standpoint of somebody who enjoys providing access to students i love that i get to work with families who are looking for a place after may one i love it it's one of my favorite favorite things to do But so I'm not criticizing. Right. But there are folks who are a little too excited about May 1 in doing this. They're a little too excited about admitting only four percent of their students. That's why it's interesting. You know this from the multiple hats you've worn in public and private schools that when you have those college night panels, you know, the admission rep that just can't wait to talk about how hard it is to get in. <laughs> You've seen it. And I'm like, like sometimes I'm on these panels and I'm looking down at them and I'm saying, you, you really could not wait. It, two sentences in, well, you know, we're very uh, selective at uh, this institution and, uh, you know, but we, Hey, we want you to apply, put your name in the hat. Well, okay. Well, so what is it? Are you telling me it's going to be really, really hard? Or are you t- are you telling me that you actually care about my chances of being admitted, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the 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 problem I start to have with some of these places is you build them up to tear them down. Yeah. So no. you say, look, come on, apply. Do you never know? We're test optional or whatever, and then boom, denial letter. And that kid's been hanging on. You've kept him hanging on since September. It's now April, and now this is when you told him he really didn't have a chance. You knew he didn't have a chance. You knew in October this kid didn't have a chance. When when your when your pool was starting to come in and you saw where things let him go, <laughs> at that you know so it's like things like that 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 really bother me. But I I, I share the optimism in that I think these kids are going to do well, but I'm scared to death. Yeah, that about the supports necessary, and I'm also scared to death in that if they are even a percentage point because you know how it works with students of color. Even if you're a percentage point lower than the one before, there's some faculty member there, some administrator saying, see? Yep. See that? Okay. The good thing is we're built for that. We're used to that. Uh, hey. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, right? You know, I hate that I was told that I had to work twice as hard yeah. um, to get half the respect, you know? But the good news is that I'm battle tested. Yeah, and that's true. Of, and lots of our young people are. Um, so I, I, I know that they're going to rise to the occasion, man. Like I, I'm just so excited for them. Like I said before, like going to Villanova changed my life. 
I mean, I'm not sitting here having this conversation with you right now if I gone to any other university, man. So I, I know the power and that's why I love higher ed. That's why I love being a college counselor because I know the transformative power that that university experience can bring, man. It's yeah, it's amazing, man. So I, I know they're going to go there just like your one fam. They're going to send, they're going to go off. They're going to be successful. They're going to get a banging jobs. They're going to buy their mom a house. And it's going to be the American dream that we, that we've all aspired to, man. Like that's, that's the beauty in it. And that's why, that's what keeps us coming back. That's what keeps you going out there on the roads. Then absolutely. That's what keeps me, you know, being energized with these kids, helping them create their apps, man. So we're going to keep on keeping on until we can't no more. Yeah. And hey, that young lady I referenced, she's coming to Penn State, baby. So hey. we're going to take care. Absolutely. We already take care. We're going to continue to take care. No question. So I'm excited. And I and I, like I said, behind the scenes at our university, when we were trying to work with her, we said, hey, you know, all these avenues have been closed off. What What can we do? this can make a generational impact in her family absolutely and the way her mother talks about providing this opportunity for a daughter i'm i'd be lying to you if i didn't say i had tears just brimming because it i mean it was from the heart man it was it was beautiful and and, you know once you become a parent you just become so soft (laughs) right like you know like years ago oh ma'am no problem you know now i'm here like well you know we do it we we do what we can you know you just it's just tearing you up but she she we're going to take good care of her but you know i wanted to before we go i wanted to talk about something else because we when we were coming on uh to recording this you were telling me an interesting story about a student of yours at your international school and how he viewed coming to school in america mm-hmm. right because the the united states and our our you know college and university offerings have long been viewed as the land of opportunity by a lot of students our international applications for years have been going through the roof and you know i i know a colleague uh had put me onto a documentary i want to watch very soon called mainland about two i believe chinese students uh, seeking that opportunity of education and kind of the pressure that was put on them by their families to, you know, go get a great education and then come back and take care of us in, in a way. And I've seen that through, you know, other other ways. Like I had a friend from Japan who was sent to the United States for that same reason. Right. But because of all the things that have gone on, you know, that we've talked about earlier, xenophobia, mass shootings and police brutality all these types of things i have to imagine internationally students might be looking at us a little bit different and you confirm that for me can you talk to me a little bit about that absolutely Uh, so i work at an international school where uh, a significant portion of our students are american passport holders but they've never lived in america right so they're what they call third culture kids kids that are raised outside their culture and there's a lot of interesting research about uh, TCKs that they're called. I have a book, but it's my, not on my office right now. But one of the things that's tough is the repatriation process, right? So here, they could be that Dutch kid, right? But if they go to the Netherlands, now they're just a kid, right? So yeah. what does it mean to be American? Like these ideas of self and these ideas of identity all bubble up. They're not quite sure what to make of them because they haven't had their identities forged and affirmed by that culture uh, in a way that is, it's just different when you're outside of that culture. So this particular student was uh, admitted to one of those um, 
highly rejective universities. Um, and he was super excited. He was admitted. He got uh, a very prestigious scholarship associated with it. And he pulled me aside and said, I'm terrified to go. I've never lived in America. Um, I see all this violence on the news, the guns. They, they can't wrap their mind around guns. Um, why does everyone have them? Why is it legal? Texas just passed a law that said, you don't even need a permit anymore. You could just have one, you know? So um, it, it's, they're terrified. All they see is the news, the mass shootings, the protests, the tear gas. And do kids aspire to go to America? I think it depends on the country they come from. When you think of international kids or international students, what countries do you think of? Usually India, yeah. usually China or Asia. China. Yeah. Very rarely or Africa. You, you're not seeing yeah. many Europeans clamoring to go to the States for university. One, because their schools are just as good and they cost a fraction of, of the cost. Um, secondly, because they're shorter in duration, right? The European yeah. programs are typically three years as, as opposed to American four. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if Americans or international students are in a hurry to go um, back to America. I think that that's interesting in, in my context because this is oftentimes um, one of the opportunities they're gonna to get to live in their home country but truly, most of my international students are going to Canada. Um, mm. And I don't know if you know anything about the Canadian universities, but they're dope. Yeah. Um, professor Galloway talks about, he's a professor at NYU. He talks about this American idea, this artificial scarcity that comes around university admissions, how we've played it up to these seats just nearly impossible to get when in reality we have 4,000 institutions in our country. Yeah. Um, uh, there are plenty of seats, right? But in the Canadian system, I, Gladwell talks about this on his podcast. I'm not sure which one, a few episodes back. But the Canadian universities are gigantic. <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> you know, a small school in Canada is 30,000, which we would say is a big school, right? University yeah. of Toronto has 75,000 students. They are ranked in the top 20 globally, right? So if you are a strong student who wants to do high-level research, that wants to go to a school with prestige, why would I apply to one of the highly rejectives in America when I could go to U of T, get the same experience for a fraction of the cost and get in, no sweat off my brow, right? Like, you know, so... I think kids are starting to to view that, especially when you talk about like the pathway to citizenship, you can stay and work for three yeah. years on your student visa after you graduate, which mm. is a luxury that I don't think it's that specific and as clear in America. So um, to your point, I, I don't think that, um, I, I think America needs to realize that they have some competition. <laughs> oh, yeah, because that's one of the things, Aaron, I'm glad you said all this, because this is one of the things I love about this generation of students that I'm working with, like and, and people beat them, beat them up all the time. Oh, Gen Z, they don't do this right. They don't do that right. But I will tell you, I have never had as many conversations with prospective students that were informed. Absolutely. And yes, they they don't know every little thing. Who in the world does it? 16, 17 or 18, please. If, if our lives were recorded to the level that these young people's lives are recorded, we'd be terrified 
of what we said, what we thought was true, all all of that type of stuff, right? And so, but I, I go in these meetings, these Zoom meetings and stuff with students nowadays, man, and the questions, I'm like, oh my God, like, that's something that I have a lot of college sophomores asking me about. They'll walk back in the admissions office and say, hey, Jeremy, remember when you talked about this? Like, how does that work? I've got prospective juniors asking me about. I had, I'll never forget this experience for the rest of my life. I had a young Korean student come up to me at an open house. And she said, why don't I see more black tour guides? Mm. Talk about it. And I was like... You know, when your brain, like, I literally froze. Like, I was like, I just couldn't make sense of what I was being asked. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, every tour that I've seen go out of here, I have not seen any black students leading that tour. Why is that? And I was like, you know, part of me is just like, yo, I love you. And can I adopt you? Because you're just like this amazing student. Right. Who's asking these types of questions. But like you're coming across more kids who are like they're looking for that. Right. Like representation to them isn't necessarily have to look exactly like them. Right. Like they're, they're looking for it in a variety of different ways. Right. And so we as universities, we've got to get ready. Like, I think this reckoning is happening in higher education and it's coming from all sides at once like mm -hmm. before we thought it was going to be the enrollment cliff of 2025 right 2023 to 2025 everybody that's all they talked about for like four years oh it's coming the cliff is coming what are you going to do now it's the cliff it's social issues it's mental health it's hey why do you cost so much hey why don't i just go to canada hey what's that school in italy that's got all the business connection like it's all of these things coming at once and some universities are really going to have a hard time turning on a dime, right? Because some of us were big ships. So it's hard to knock us over, but it's also not easy for us to turn. True. Right? Like Suez Canal, shout out. You know, like, Absolutely. so So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch this unfold. And I think with international students, the reckoning's even greater because most in, in United States American students are not going to go abroad, Correct. right? At least in the the future that we can see, right? This the short distance that we have in the future that we can kind of forecast. They're not necessarily going to do that, but international students, especially ones like the students at your school, you're that's something very familiar to them. Absolutely. They're already international citizens, right? Absolutely. You know, proverbially and literally. Yep. And so they're going to be much more open to saying, hey, what are my other options? And I think those colleges in the United States that rely so heavily on international students, boy, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch because that's been like, you know, there was that rush. I feel like in the 2008, 9, 10, 11 range where everybody had now an international recruiter everybody was working with these agencies overseas to get access to students because that was like you know the growth area it's like okay if these graduation rates in the united states are going to go down then let's go for international students and especially because they're full pay right mm -hmm. like that was that was like the the gold rush right for a lot of people but what happens when those students don't want you right for a long time you didn't want them mm-hmm and your policies, your TOEFLs, 
your your this that and the other thing your english proficiencies in other policies we're making it that like we'll, we'll consider you yeah you know apply but we'll think about it. now what happens when the client base says you know what no need thank you thank you for your interest in me but i'm looking at mcgill yeah what what happens it's interesting it's super interesting man the first thing i asked a kid in their third year the junior year and i say okay what country do you want to go for university because how they answer that question has huge implications for how i counsel them for the next year yeah if if a kid in their junior year tells them they want to go to america i need to tell them right now that's why you need that selective person on your panel yeah. Stop being all doe-eyed about yeah. the idea of, right? Because yeah. these kids and this international lifestyle that they lead, they've led a privileged life, not unlike upper middle class white people in yeah. America, right? They yeah. lived a wonderful life and they should. All parents want for their kids something that they didn't have, right? So yeah, that's oh, absolutely. You know, we, they're, anyway. So I need some of my friends from the highly rejectives to come and be re- be them let them know what the deal is right yeah they got to get in this mindset in america that the competition is steep and they need yes. to learn how to weave this very interesting narrative that is both academic creative and engaging right like these are the things that admissions reps love to read right mm-hmm. that is not the situation in other countries right Mm. sometimes when a kid tells me you know i really just want to go to canada or i want to just go to the uk or i'm going to australia sometimes i'm like (laughs) because i know that all they have to do is submit their transcript yeah that easy i mean when you think about access right why is it that we have kids writing sometimes eight essays right when literally you have kids being accepted to dental school or to medical school on just the transcript in one conversation right because they have everyone has this right to fail mentality right Mm. whereas in america everyone has to prove their right to fail right like it's it's a difference in the mission it's a difference in the philosophy you know when you when you think about kids on this side of the atlantic ocean versus over there it's it's like yeah it's it's a, it's truly amazing to see the differences and how we prioritize and value education. What is the implication? What is the benefit of higher education on society? How do we value our graduates? You know, and and it's all made manifest in how we ask them to apply. Yeah, and it it's interesting to to think about, and I'm sure there are there's research and there are papers out there that I have to track down, but you know what part of this is a byproduct of education no longer being viewed as a public good in the united states right and it and you can kind of see where it's building towards this thing for just the elite which it's kind of been for the majority of its existence in a, in a way right like but it, it really is starting to feel more that way because it's just the hurt. Like you said, the hurdles, like if I'm if I have to work, if I'm a high school student who, especially because of the impacts of COVID on my family, I have to work and say I have to work 20 to 40 hours a week, which some of these kids are working. Mm-hmm. And now I have to cast my seed wider 
because I don't know how this admission thing is going to shake out. So I have to apply to 10 schools. Each of them requires, you know, maybe a personal statement or a prompt that's specific to them. How in the world do I do this? And oh, yeah, I'm at a public school, so I don't most likely have a college counselor. I have a school counselor who is trying to keep up with IEPs, 504s, administrative changes, mental health, suicide, all of the all these things. Oh, yeah. And every college and university who's decided to change some part of their process and policy in the last year. I'm trying to keep up with that. Oh, and I have my own life. Mm. How do they help those kids? You know, it's just, it's crazy with all that 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 is expected for them to submit. I I mean, I think it's, I think I saw somewhere that, Common App is now going to be functional on mobile phones. Mm. I mean, just think about, about ten that. years too late. <laughs> but why? I mean, they did that to accommodate the kids who were doing their college applications on their cell phones. Absolutely. The kids need to do their college applications on their cell phones. Yeah. Should be a wake up call to reimagine how kids need to apply for a college, right? Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. Wow. Like, yeah, but, but, and, but then that goes to the, also to the how long it takes higher ed to catch up. Mm-hmm. Because that's been the case since I've come in admission. I remember when part of my territory was Philadelphia. So, you know, Penn State has uh, Philadelphia Recruitment Outreach Center in in Philadelphia. And then I would join in on a lot of those visits with them. Mm -hmm. Those kids were doing application workshops on their phone then. Oh, my goodness. So that was two. I came into the, the profession 2007, 2006, 2007, January 2007. So that was the case January 2007. And now what are we 2021 and like this is just a provision like you this is just something that you thought would be a good idea. Yeah. What? You know, like we come on, man, we got to we got to catch up. Yeah, man. Because it's I mean, like I said, the the applicant, it's it's fascinating to look at um, the application processes from country to country. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, because some schools, some countries make it as simple as send us an email, we'll reply to you with an application, you complete the application and you're in. Like as long as some countries is literally, do you have a high school diploma? Yes. Okay, cool. It's that simple. Um, some schools and their application process require you to think and act in the moment, which I think is the best idea to get at high level thinking and merit, right? So like, um, I keep going back to Canada. Um, you get you'll get a link. You need to do like a, your 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 interview, right? You log into their portal. A question will pop up. You have two minutes to reply to that question verbally. You just talk it out. Um, I've seen some that were like, okay, here is a diagram. Here is a graph. I need you to make some inferences and some deductions based on this. I've seen others where it's a piece of art, like an actual image, and you need to describe it the emotion of what the authors are, are the artist's intent behind it, right? So we really try to get at these skills, right? These ability to write, to uh, articulate complex ideas, just to see how kids think, to problem solve in the moment. What more could you ask for? Like That's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, so I think, you know, when you think about who deserves these seats at the highly rejectives, 
when you yeah. think about what it takes to be prepared. They don't have a college counselor helping them perform, perform their essay, yeah. multiple <laughs> revisions, you know, uh -huh. PhD level counselors that make them sound super eloquent when they're just 17 year old kids who like to play with batteries, right? Like, yeah, you know, so it's, it's interesting, man. Like, like I said, I wish I'd done this 10 years ago. Mm. But then we wouldn't have met. Oh, it's true. It's true. I'll take it back. So that alone erases that. I'll take it back. Right? Right. Right. No? <laughs> no I think we, we had to have met at least nine years ago. I was still in Downingtown. That's right. Yeah, but you know what was interesting? Like, I probably didn't. We probably didn't even really get a chance to talk into, like, your last year or two there. Yeah, it's true. Right? Because it's just, like, it's all, it's the dice roll of, like, what time is my visit? What counselor is available, quote unquote, which we know is is ever hard to predict. Sure. So most of the time when I would come, I'd, I'd see Chris Wick. Yeah. Right. Like or, you know, I just happen to run into another counselor. And just because of professional development and stuff, I just also got to know the East counselors a lot better closer and a lot deeper than the west counselors wasn't because i wanted it to be that way but it was just because the east counselors were involved with pacac yeah man it, that that's the interesting thing even about these districts of multiple high schools the needs of yeah. the clientele is just different but you know it could be it is in, in the same district you know so downingtown one of the most interesting districts i love it to death i love east i love west i love stem to death i yeah. love them all but it's like you see it with Westchester and their three. Mm -hmm. um, it's the the differences, you know, and the the each building has a different personality too, Absolutely. which is oh my god, which is so hard to understand. It's like man, you guys are part of the same neck of the woods, but the the personalities are different, the atmosphere and, and stuff like that. But I, I love them, and I'm I'm glad our paths crossed at, at you know through through your work at Downingtown and also through PACAC when you were we were doing summer institute together oh. which was awesome and I know I feel the same way because I'm not I'm not a part of it anymore so it's it's hard it's hard not to be part of that team man we had an all-star roster yeah man yeah we're gonna get together we're gonna get the band back together again Steve. yes but remember I'm, I'm teaching the SJU this summer Oh, okay. Um, so I'll what be. What are you back. teaching? I'm teaching global perspectives and educational leadership. Uh oh. K to twenty, talking about these ideas of globalness, global citizenry. What does it mean to to be an American? What does it education mean? What does it look like in other places? What is the purpose? Does it serve in all these other places? Um, have some speakers, case studies. It should be a dope course. Oh, that's good. That sounds interesting. I might have to hide in the back one day. Well, it's going to be on Zoom. <laughs> we can let you come in. Oh, nice. Oh, you don't want me. The students <laughs> are like, um, the, can I get whatever prorated pro piece of my uh, tuition it, it is per class? Can I get that piece back? We can't have this guy in here. <laughs> as long as you contribute to the convo, we'll call it square. <laughs> All right. Well, Aaron, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming. And it was great catching up, man. You and your family continue to be safe happy and healthy and we'll see you when you come to the states we'll do man looking forward to it awesome thanks man thank you so much to dr aaron jones for coming on the pod we're definitely going to have him back 
awesome awesome guest wonderful man great father excellent professional all of those things so happy he came on the Bebo university podcast will return next week with a new episode but until then find me on twitter at j branch like a tree branch psu or on instagram at the Bebo university pod and I'll, I'll be posting a little bit more frequently there that's one of my goals for this month and uh so find me there and engage and send messages and feedback and all that type of stuff don't forget to rate the podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcast and spread the the message far and wide to all of your friends family colleagues whoever share the pod i hope to grow it a little bit more i'm having a ton of fun doing it and i hope the content has been beneficial to you thank you so much stay safe talk to you soon